Welcome to the Valley Avon Podcast, a weekly podcast provided by Valley Community Baptist Church, located in Avon, Connecticut. In the final message of the series, Senior Pastor Rob O'Neill explores why accountability to God and each other is essential in navigating life in his teaching titled, Unaccountable Actions. Now here is Pastor Rob. How do little mistakes grow up to become moral failures? A used car that I had one time helped me to see at least how little mistakes can become big mistakes. I owned an older used Saab 900 one time. It was the most fun I've ever had driving. I loved that car. But the repairs on an older Saab became very expensive. And then one day I was on a day trip with my family and another warning light came on, the oil light. I pulled over to check the oil, assuming that the warning light was right. I pulled the dipstick out and discovered there was plenty of oil in the car. So I put the dipstick back in, put the hood down, and continued on my trip. Later that day, on the way home, suddenly the car wasn't driving right. It felt like I was driving through quicksand. The more gas I gave it, the slower it seemed to go. I pulled over, I called a tow truck, and it turned out that what had happened is that the oil pump had been broken. So no oil was getting to the engine. And consequently, the engine blew. And that was the day I sold my sob for junk. It was a sad day, but it taught me how a little mistake, a little problem like a warning light, can lead to a big mistake, a blown engine. Now, in the life of Samson, we have seen little mistakes growing up to become big mistakes. The little mistakes that we saw Samson making at the beginning included having wandering eyes and liking a Philistine that he saw. But those mistakes began to grow. His temper got out of control. His wedding was ruined. There was a pile of bodies behind him. But the question became, can Samson, the judge of Israel, learn from his mistakes? But you see, Samson's big mistakes grew into full-blown moral failure in his life. Samson made very destructive decisions. He did that which he was supposed to not do, and he did not do that which he was supposed to do. In the process of making destructive decisions, Samson ended up with life-altering consequences for himself and for everyone around him. He became a full-blown moral failure. And we've talked about the sources of that moral failure in other weeks. But this week, we come to another chapter in the life of Samson, and we discover that being unaccountable can lead small mistakes, little mistakes, to become full-blown moral failure in our lives. We all make mistakes. I make mistakes. You make mistakes. When we are accountable to someone or to some set of standards in our lives, then we learn from our mistakes. 
and we choose not to keep repeating those mistakes and allowing them to grow in our lives. But when we are accountable to no one and to no standard, no set of ideas, when nothing is able to hold us accountable, then those little mistakes grow up to become full-blown moral failure. So now as we go back to the life of Samson one more time, we are going to explore how his life ends, and we are going to come away with a deeper appreciation for the importance of accountability in our lives. Because you see, in Judges chapter 16, Samson's mistakes continued to grow Samson, you will remember, was a judge of Israel in the period of ancient Israel's history before there were kings. During this period, he became the leader of Israel after winning a significant battle. And at the end of that battle, when he became the judge of Israel, a question was lingering over his head. Would he learn from the mistakes in his life? Immediately, in Judges chapter 16, verse 1, we discover that Samson... Samson felt he was unaccountable. Judges 16 verse 1 reads, Samson went to Gaza, and there he saw a prostitute, and he went into her. Now, Samson was the judge of Israel in the days when a group of people called the Philistines dominated Israel. Judges chapter 16 verse 1 says that Samson went to Gaza, Gaza was the largest city-state that belonged to the Philistines. It was the capital of the Philistine-controlled areas, and it was the southernmost city in Philistine territory, as far away from Israel as Samson could go in Philistine territory. Why was Samson in the southernmost city of the Philistines? Why was he in their capital? because Samson was up to no good. Samson went to Gaza to visit a prostitute. Samson, the leader of Israel, going to the capital of the enemy. Samson, going to a prostitute. These are unwise actions. No one would have advised Samson to do that. It breaks all sense of propriety in his role, which means no one was able to hold him accountable. Samson thought of himself as completely unaccountable to anyone or to anything. As we get to verses 2 and 3, we recognize that this sense of being unaccountable to anyone was mushrooming into the sense that he was completely untouchable by any adversary or any problem. Verses 2 and 3 continue. The Gazites were told, Samson has come here, and they surrounded the place and set an ambush for him all night at the gate of the city. They kept quiet all night saying, let us wait till the light of the morning, then we will kill him. But Samson lay till midnight, and at midnight he arose and took hold of the doors of the gate of the city and the two posts, and he pulled them up, bar and all, and put them on his shoulders and carried them to the top of the hill that is in front of Hebron. You see, Samson felt very comfortable going into the most powerful city-state in the Philistine territory. He went into their capital, and he stayed overnight. The people of Gaza heard, and they had come to consider him an enemy, a danger. And so they planned to get him, to eliminate him, to kill him. They set guard around this walled city. It is possible that they put a perimeter around his house. They closed the gates of the city, and they had guards set at the gates. Samson knew this. 
And so rather than falling asleep and staying the entire night, Samson got up at midnight, and somehow he was able to leave the house without being challenged and either overcame the guards at the gate or walked right past the guards at the gate. He ripped the gates, the posts, off of their frame and out of the ground. He put them on his back, and he carried them 40 miles to the hill country of Judah and set them up as a memorial, a sign of his great strength across from the city of Hebron. You see, Samson didn't think anyone could touch him. He was unaccountable because he didn't think anyone could touch him. As we continue into verses three through or four through six, we discover that he really does think of himself as increasingly untouchable. In verses four through six, we read what happens next. After this, Samson loved a woman in the valley of Sorek whose name was Delilah. And the lords of the Philistines came up to Delilah and said to her, seduce him and see where his great strength lies and by what means we may overpower him that we may bind him to humble him. And we will each give you 1,100 pieces of silver. So Delilah said to Samson, please tell me where your great strength lies and how you might be bound that one could subdue you. Samson left the hill country of Hebron and went to the valley of Sorek, where he fell in love with another Philistine woman. Her name was Delilah, which means of the night. Samson was falling in love with the night and with darkness. The leaders of the five Philistine city-states saw an opportunity, and they each went together to Delilah and offered her a reward, a great sum of money from each one of them in exchange for discovering the secret of Samson's great strength. And so with a view to becoming a national hero and becoming fabulously wealthy, Delilah said yes. And so she did what is not surprising at all. She asked Samson point blank, what is the secret of your great strength? I want to know how I can subdue you. There's no big surprise there. But what happens next is shocking. Samson, hearing that his beloved is looking for the secret of his great strength to subdue him, decides to stick around. Why? Because he doesn't think Delilah can do anything to harm him. His sense of being untouchable continues to grow in the four episodes that follow. In the first three of those episodes, in each episode, Samson tells Delilah a lie about the source of his great strength. Then in each one of the first three episodes, Delilah attempts to restrain him. In each one of the episodes, Samson, of course, breaks free. And in each one of those episodes, Samson sticks around because he's untouchable. In the fourth of the episodes, Delilah finally vexes him to the point where he does something novel. This time he tells her the truth. He says, I'm a Nazarite to God, which means I have taken a vow. I'm consecrated to him. No one has ever cut my hair. That's part of the Nazarite vow. If someone were to cut my hair or shave my head, I would be as weak as any other mere mortal. And then she caused him to fall asleep in her lap. She had his hair cut. And then as each time before, she roused him saying that, 
Philistines are upon you. Samson thought he was untouchable. And Samson's response after finding that his hair had been cut proves beyond a shadow of a doubt that he thought he was untouchable. Delilah roused Samson from his sleep and he recognized immediately that his hair had been cut. But he decided he was going out to battle expecting that as before, he would be able to overcome his Philistine enemies. But shockingly, this time when he went out to fight for his freedom, he discovered that his strength was gone. And the Philistines subdued him. They put him in bronze shackles. They gouged his eyes out. And they took him to Gaza, where they put him in prison, grinding grain. Samson had been convinced that he was untouchable. And when we're untouchable, we are unaccountable to anything and to anyone. But as it turns out, no one of us is untouchable. When we make little mistakes and we get away with those mistakes and there are no consequences to those little mistakes, we begin to wonder, if we make bigger mistakes, will there be no consequences to those mistakes as well? And that becomes a dangerous cycle pattern of thought in our minds. And if we are accountable to no one and to no set of standards, then that thought easily takes root in our lives and convinces us that we are untouchable. But here's the truth. None of us is untouchable. None of us has the ability to commit one mistake after another and avoid all of the consequences that will go along with those mistakes. None of us are untouchable. It turns out we are very touchable by consequences in life. And the fact that we are touchable by consequences reminds us how much we need accountability in our lives. You see, we are accountable. We are accountable. Samson came to the conclusion that he was not accountable to anything for anyone. Samson didn't think he was accountable to his Nazarite vow. He systematically broke every component of that Nazarite vow and expected expected that his strength would stay with him. Samson considered himself unaccountable to the Old Testament law. He broke it flagrantly and freely. Samson considered himself unaccountable to his calling He felt no need to do that which he was supposed to do in life in setting the Israelites free from their Philistine captors. Samson felt no accountability to his job. Inherent in the role of leading Israel were things that he was supposed to not do. But Samson consistently did those things he was supposed not to do. Ultimately, Samson felt no sense of accountability to God. But we are accountable. We are accountable to God and to his objective moral standards. You see, we don't make the rules. We don't get to decide what's right and wrong. God makes the rules. God decides what is right and wrong. He tells us what is right and wrong. 
the rules, that what is right and wrong, our objective moral standard comes ultimately from God's own righteousness and holiness. God's righteousness and holiness is ultimately our objective moral standard. In order to help us to understand what his own righteousness and holiness looks like, God helped us to, to see what that looks like in real life. It begins with the Ten Commandments in the Old Testament, the basis of the Old Testament law. It's the beginnings of an objective moral standard that we can live by in life. But look at how the Ten Commandments begin. In Exodus chapter 20, verse 2, as the Ten Commandments begin, God says this, I am the Lord your God. I am the Lord your God. There is an objective moral standard, and we are accountable to that objective moral standard because we are accountable to God. He is the one who has the right to give us an objective moral standard about what is right and wrong, and he is powerful enough to enforce that objective moral standard about what is right and wrong. We are accountable to God and to his objective moral standard, but we are also accountable to one another. Why? Why are we accountable to one another? Why does accountability come to us through one another? Well, the Bible tells us that we are a family to one another. When we become followers of Jesus, we become family to one another. Romans chapter 12, verse 5 says, So we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. From that point forward, the New Testament calls us brothers and sisters in Christ. We are family to one another. Beyond being family to one another, we are on a team together. And as part of one team together, we all have the gifts that the others need for living. And not only do we have the gifts that each other needs for living, but we have the wisdom, the collective wisdom that the body needs. And so the Bible tells us to draw on the wisdom that can come from other wise people who belong to God. Even back in the Old Testament, Proverbs 3, verses 1 and 2, which some of us have been trying to memorize, says, My son, do not forget my teaching, but let your heart keep my commandments for length of days and years of life and peace they will add to you. We're to seek wisdom from one another. Let's seek out accountability. Let's seek out accountability from one another. Now, there's a kind of accountability that's not very helpful. When advice is given freely and in an unsolicited fashion, it's not always the best advice. Anybody ever gotten any unsolicited advice that wasn't very helpful? Can I get a what, what? <laughs> But we seek out wise counsel from wise, godly people. It's not easy for us to seek wise counsel and accountability from wise Christians. Because when we do so, we're admitting that we don't know everything on our own. And that's tough to do. But the next step is even tougher. Having sought out wisdom, counsel, and accountability from wise Christians... We listen to what they say and value the insight that's given to us. The next step is even more difficult. And that is having sought out wise counsel from Christians, we listen to it, we value it, and then we submit to it. 
meaning that somehow we change the way we think and the way we live. It's not easy to submit even to wise, godly Christians. But when we seek out accountability, it is a powerful way to disrupt the pathway of little mistakes growing into big mistakes that become full-blown moral failure in our lives. Let's seek out accountability because we are accountable. We are also redeemable. We are redeemable. You see, as we look at Samson's life, particularly in Judges 16, one of the things that we are going to realize very quickly is that Israel was the real moral failure in Judges 16. You see, in the entire book of Judges, there is a cycle that the people of Israel were going through. They would disobey God. They would face consequences. They would cry out to God. God would raise up a deliverer. He would save his people. There would be peace. They would seek God for a period of time and and prosper. And then the cycle would begin over again. Each time the cycle began in the book of Judges, it got worse than the time before. By the time we reached Samson's life, Israel did not cry out to God for deliverance. Samson was not much of a deliverer, and at the end of his life, there was no peace. Israel was the real moral failure in the book of Judges. But God redeemed Israel. Even though Israel never cried out to God, God sent them a deliverer in the person of Samson. Samson's life purpose was to begin delivering the people of Israel from the Philistines. And even though it was the farthest thing from Samson's mind, God repeatedly pushed Samson to act, to disturb the peace that had arisen between the Israelites and the Philistines. And God supernaturally began one bit at a time to distance his people from their Philistine captors. And it came down to one decisive act at the end of Samson's life that ensured peace and stability would never return between Israel and the Philistines. You see, having been captured, the Philistines kept Samson around for their own entertainment. They brought him to the temple of Dagon, their god, so that he could perform for them. But Samson prayed and asked one more time for the gift of great strength. And in the great strength that God gave him, he pushed and he collapsed the temple of Dagon on everyone and killing everyone inside, including himself. He did not decisively defeat the Philistines, but he did ensure that there was never peace between Israel and the Philistines again. And later leaders would ultimately rally Israel to the cause of the Lord and finally and decisively defeat the Philistines. Because God was redeeming Israel and making sure that the people would be secure through whom Jesus would come into the world to save us. And we too can be redeemed. You see, when we fail morally, we recognize that the sin that we have committed, the mistakes that we have made, go into a separate, distinct kind of category. We have done so much damage to ourselves, to our relationship with God, and to the people around us that we recognize that there will be consequences from our actions that will be with us. 
People will look at us differently. Our relationships are going to be different. Our role in life afterward will be different. But when we recognize that there are life-altering consequences in our relationships with others, it causes us to wonder as we think about God, God, do you look at me in a different way now? Have I done something so bad that I cannot be redeemed by you? Internally, we conclude that we cannot be redeemed. We suspect it. But the truth of the matter is, no matter what we have done in life, no matter what you have done in life, no matter what damage you've done to your life, you can be forgiven in Jesus Christ for that moral failure. Nothing you have done makes you unredeemable in God's sight. And so the question becomes, will we repent? Will we repent and ask God to redeem us? Let's repent of our moral failures and of our sins. To repent means that we turn away from our sin and we turn to God. We turn away from our sin, meaning we recognize what we have done. We recognize the severity of what we have done and the consequences of what we have done, and we reject it. Instead, we turn away from it to God, and we leave that guilt with God, and we turn to God for forgiveness and for new life. We turn to God and say that we will follow him and we will align our lives with his purposes for our lives going forward. Repentance becomes the key to getting forgiveness and cleanliness and new possibilities in life. And it turns out that that same repentance, when we repent of our sin on a regular basis, becomes like a preventative measure for little mistakes growing into big mistakes and moral failures. And it becomes the thing that can help us to begin to recover from our big mistakes, our destructive decisions, and our moral failures. Let's repent of our sin. The USS New Orleans reminds us that even a wreck can be redeemed. The USS New Orleans was a heavy cruiser in the Pacific Theater during World War II. It was in multiple battles, and it was finally in the Battle of Tassafaranga that the USS New Orleans was struck by a torpedo. It ripped off the bow of the ship and the front third of the boat. Miraculously, and because of a lot of brave sacrificial work by her crew, the boat didn't sink. They were able to get it into a nearby harbor and do some, some critical repairs. The crew actually used coconut logs to fashion a bow for the boat. And then the USS New Orleans steamed 2,000 miles to Australia for emergency repairs backwards so that the boat didn't sink. After emergency repairs in Australia, the USS New Orleans made it all the way to Puget Sound Naval Yard for a complete refit. The USS New Orleans is a reminder that even a wreck can be redeemed. There is no wreck that we make of our lives that God cannot, be, cannot redeem for us. Even better, Less than nine months later, the USS New Orleans was back in the Pacific Theater in action. 
can we be restored from our destructive decisions? Can we be restored from our destructive decisions? Well, that's the real question, isn't it? The truth of the matter is, it's not easy. When we've made destructive decisions with life-altering consequences, those consequences are life-altering. Relationships are broken. Trust is broken. And it seems true that Every time you look under the surface of a moral failure, you discover that there is more going on than you knew about initially. It's not easy to come back from destructive decisions and moral failures, but can we be restored from destructive decisions and moral failures? The answer is yes. But to be restored from destructive decisions, life-altering consequences, and moral failures, some things are going to have to change in order for us to come back from destructive decisions, life-altering consequences, and moral failures, we're going to need a new perspective. Because you see, in this new perspective, we realize that God uses moral failures all the time. Samson was a complete moral failure, and yet God used him to begin redeeming Israel. God was always using moral failures. Moses, the lawgiver, was a murderer. King David, the great king of ancient Israel, was an adulterer and a murderer. Matthew, the apostle, was a collaborator with an enemy empire. Paul, the apostle, before he was Paul, back when he was Saul, persecuted the early church. That's just the tip of the iceberg. God uses moral failures all the time for his ends and for his glory. And that's good news because that means that when we make destructive decisions, the good news is that we know that God uses people who have made destructive decisions. But there's a flip side to that good news. And that is that knowing that God uses moral failures and people who have made destructive decisions means there is no room left for pride. In place of pride before God, we have only humility and gratitude. And that's a new perspective that we need. To come back from destructive decisions, life-altering consequences, and moral failures, we also need new goals. Because you see, if our goal is simply to get back the life that we had before, that is the wrong goal. God may not give us back the life that we had before. We need a new goal. And that new goal centers around making and multiplying disciples for Jesus. That is our fundamental role in life anyway, our fundamental purpose and goal. And that needs to become our new goal in life, that we might make and multiply disciples where we are for the glory of God. That's the new goal we need if we are to come back from moral failure. And if we're to come back from destructive decisions, life-altering consequences, and moral failures, we need a new hero. God was the hero in Samson's story. God is the hero in Israel's story. If we are to come back from destructive decisions, life-altering consequences, and moral failures, 
We can't be the unaccountable hero in our own story. God must become the hero in our story. And then we rely on him and give all the glory to him. Thank you for joining us for this week's episode of the Valley Avon podcast. If you would like to hear more, you can subscribe for free on any platform you use. If you would like to visit us in person or would like to submit a prayer request, you can visit us on the web at avon.valleycommunity.cc. From all of us here at Valley Community Baptist Church, thank you for coming and have a blessed week.